On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamperin, we're going to be talking about whatever happened to the flu in Canada. The flu is gone. Where did it go and why did it go? We'll, we'll be diving into that. We're going to be talking about filmmaking and recovery from strokes. The two tie in together in a new movie that a caregiver has come out with. The blockade, yeah, that's back on the agenda because that is still going on down at the Ambassador Bridge. A local teacher is part of a new lawsuit to see if the courts will render the Catholic school board unconstitutional and create one school board. We'll talk to her. The Ticats, tons of changes in the Ticats. We'll dive into that. And Super Bowl ads this Sunday. One of the reasons you watch, are they good this year? Some of them are already out. We'll talk about it. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. One of the great mysteries of the pandemic that we've been going through is the disappearance of the flu. If you look at StatsCan numbers, usually there are about 52,000 cases of influenza reported across Canada in a year. And of course, those would be cases serious enough that would require doctor's attention. Otherwise, nobody would know about them. So those are the reasonably serious cases of the flu. Last year, again, according to StatsCan numbers, 69, not 69,000, 69 cases of the flu. And this season, According to those same numbers, there are almost none. There's a handful, but not very many. So what has happened to the flu? Clearly, you would think it has something to do with COVID. It's too coincidental not to, but what is it? And is this just a blip or have we somehow ended the flu? I want to bring in Dr. Paul Rumeliotis, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Eastern Ontario Health for the Eastern Ontario Health Unit. He joins us now. Doctor, thank you for your time today. No problem. So when I call it a mystery, uh, mm-hmm. and I caught myself when I was saying that, realizing it may not be, is it really, or are masks and social distancing and hand washing and those things all to explain for what's happened here? Uh, you're right. It's not a mystery. It really has to do with all of the same precautions that we're taking for COVID are the exact same precautions that prevent the flu and other respiratory illnesses for that matter, you know, the common cold and so on. So we've been seeing that not only with the flu, but other common respiratory illnesses like respiratory syncytial virus and so on uh, decreased because of those masks, the other masking and other precautions. The other thing that we're, that we know, and I'm also a microbiologist, so I can identify with this, there viruses compete. And, um, you know, it's it's a survival of the fittest. And so COVID has been around and has overwhelmed everybody and has taken over. So now is the circulating respiratory, the respiratory sort of uh, strain that's out there. So, but you're right. It has to do with the precautions and we're not out of the woods regarding the flu. Once we start coming out of the COVID pandemic, uh, the flu will come back. What do you mean by they compete? I'm not sure I understand. So if you get one of them, the other you're less likely to get because your body will be less tall. How, how does it, what, what is the competition? It, it, that's a good question. It has to do with the fact that uh, the, the, the viruses uh, uh, really want bodies and, and the more viruses are around, the more they, were, they will take over one body uh, and not allow the other virus to get into the body. So it's not a matter of the body being resistant. It's a matter of the virus overwhelming one to another. So it's a, it's a competition, really. And, and so it has to do with the, really the prevalence. And it just takes over. Um, and and we, we don't fully understand it. But really, the best way to look at it is a competition. And, and COVID is winning out at this point. So many people recently um, who have got Omicron, who have, who have mm-hmm. come down with that, have described it as being flu-like. Their symptoms are flu-like. Sure. 
are they are the viruses similar enough because the symptoms seem to be are the viruses similar enough that that describes that competition that if you've had one you're probably not going to get the other no actually the the, the symptoms are similar but the viruses are different they're a different category they're different uh, types of species uh, and, and use different mechanisms at the end of the day they still infect the respiratory system some uh, some are multi-system like the flu and covid can affect multiple systems uh, but again it, it really has to do with what trending so if there's a lot of circulating COVID in the air uh, uh around our, our you know the transmission rates are high the the flu tends to and others tend to go low but don't forget as well we're also uh, using the precautions we've got you know, masking and so on so the flu viruses and other respiratory viruses uh have less of a chance to get into people's bodies because again uh the the other virus or, overwhelms us so there are, I don't know the number, one number I read, and I don't know if it's accurate, was that roughly six to 8,000 Canadians die every year from the flu. I, I don't know if those numbers are, are accurate or whatever. Nonetheless, we know some people do pass away as a result of the flu. Yes. So if we have decided that death by COVID is not acceptable, therefore we must take these mandates of masks and distancing and all the rest, should we be extending once we now that we've learned this and seen the impact that this can have should we be extending mandates every flu season to say look death by flu is it's still death we should be having these things every year you know that's a good question and it's a very hot topic as you know now uh i i don't believe that we need mandates for the flu and i'll explain to you why the flu the flu vaccine um you know has been uh, effective one year, less effective another year because of the way that the flu changes. It changes every year, and so uh, we are we know that the uh, efficacy uh, or efficiency of the flu vaccine is 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 not very good in the elderly. And so, um, despite giving the, the the flu vaccine, which we should be giving to the elderly, uh, we also have other mechanisms in place. Unlike with COVID, uh, that for example, we know an elderly uh, population, for example, in a long term care home, uh, ha- gets uh, gets the flu. Um, we will give Tamiflu, which is an antiviral medication that will mitigate it. And so, I, I do believe that we don't need mandates, but I do believe that we need to increase the sensitivity and and the knowledge uh, of of the elderly and people who. Are vulnerable that they need the flu shot every year for that reason but we do have unlike unlike with covid until very recently we also have medications that can actually prevent the flu which we use in combination so i don't think mandates are going to be mm-hmm. uh, um, very uh, uh, very palatable to the population especially i agree having now uh, but yeah. i do think that people should know that uh, the, the flu shot is required every year and particularly for the for the i call the different spectrums of age younger and, and older individuals because again this is where the more the complications are higher and the the death rates in canada are somewhere between three and four thousand a year what is what okay. we're thinking for for the flu and 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 for the record I, i'm not a huge fan of ongoing mandates for everything that sure. was more of a uh a, a question <laughs> just of what we've been doing all right we only have a few seconds left here but sure. most of us will get mm-hmm. a cold or the flu every once in a while we don't want it yeah. but we do that's just mm-hmm. If we have now, because of these numbers that we're seeing with the flu, if we haven't been exposed to either of these lately, if we've been healthy because we've been either at home or wearing our mask, will our reaction to it be greater when we are exposed to it? Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, it depends on the virus and it depends on the situation. In most situations, we our, our, our body has what we call immune memory uh, to remember the previous infections and can, uh, and can actually help 
pre- pre- help not prevent it but to make it milder so i don't think that it'll be that uh, that 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 significant if you get a cold or a flu however uh we do know that these ki- these will come back there's no question about it as covid you know goes away and we remove the restrictions we're, we're going to go back to getting the colds and getting the flu and that's why i think it's still important for people to learn from lessons from covid you know wash your hands um don't go to work when you're sick and if you're nest and if necessary wear a mask i know the ma- the mask mandates are there and we're going to review them at some point but you know people might get into the habit of during flu season particularly if they're at risk to wear a mask dr paul rumeliotis the medical officer of health for the eastern ontario health unit very much appreciate the time today thank you for doing this no problem you're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're going to give you the debate that is going to get your blood pumping this morning because this is one that has been going on for a long, long time and people have opinions on this. It's also the subject of our Twitter poll this morning. You can get it at 900 CHML. Should we have a Catholic and a public school system in this province or just one system? A Catholic teacher is one of the plaintiffs in a legal challenge arguing that having the province fund a Catholic system is unconstitutional. Her name is Adrienne Havercroft, and she joins us now. Adrienne, thanks for the time today. Appreciate you jumping on. Thanks so much for having me. So I understand... I'm I'm actually not Catholic. Uh, Sorry, did I say Catholic? Yeah, it's okay. Oh, not not Catholic. Fighting that, saying the Catholic system is unconstitutional. Just, um, yeah. So, okay. This is not the first time, as I understand, that you have been involved in a lawsuit to bring this change. Um, what happened the last time? Why did it so, not move forward? Yeah, or- we were just fundraising at that time. This is actually the first time that we've actually sort of organized ourselves. We've never actually filed before the case, or sorry, we, we haven't filed yet. Um, so yeah, this is the first time for me that this is actually going to actually sort of go forward to the uh, to the courts. Um, are you referring to Reva Landau? Because she is the person who sort of founded our group and she did bring something before the courts back in 2012 is that what you're referring to Uh, well i knew that i knew that your name had come up with this before i didn't know if that was uh, as part of the challenge okay so so yes yeah no we we didn't that that was we were still in our fundraising stage and and kind of finding lawyers and that kind of so we are like actually the real deal this time we filed with the courts so we hadn't done that yet so when i was gonna i was gonna say is what was the impetus right now is it because finally you have the funding to be able to have the lawyers and to make this thing happen now or was there something else that made this the moment to bring this forward? No, it just took this long. Uh, we went through a couple different lawyers. Um, it was fundraising. It was just um, sort of gathering all of the tools that we needed, all the expert witnesses. It was just a really long process. So yeah, we would have liked to do this sooner. And this is just when it happened to, to happen. So <laughs> hopefully it's good timing. Well, what? so uh, look, uh, this is a debate, as I said, ma- uh, that has been happened in many living rooms and many classrooms and many places all over the place. People have had this debate. Your basic, and I know the lawyer is going to argue this, but your basic position for why, for your case on this one is what? What is the reason why you're bringing this forward? Really that it's discriminatory and um, that the constitutional protections that Catholic schools enjoy were put in place in 1867 at the time of Confederation and that, you know, the Canadian culture has drastically changed since then. It no longer really represents, I think, the people we want to be as Canadians anymore. Um, I would say another really significant development is that back in 1997, Quebec actually got rid of their publicly funded Catholic school board. So uh, if you look back at, you know, the reason that um, Catholic schools have these constitutional protections, it really had a lot to do with French Catholics and French Catholics who live in Quebec um, actually have gotten rid of this system. So we're really just saying that it's outdated, that it's discriminatory, that it contradicts um, our charter um, 
yeah, of of rights and freedoms um, that we're we, we're supposed to be free from discrimination against religion, and we think that um, the public funding of Catholic school boards is discriminatory. The one question, so as I say, when this debate happens, and it happens a lot, the one argument is what you've given for sure that mm-hmm. look, we why are we paying for a certain branch of education when we don't pay for others? The flip side that some people offer is. Well, you don't have to be Catholic to go to a Catholic school, as I understand it, especially our Catholic high school. And lots of people who aren't Catholic choose to go to a Catholic high school. So if this is discriminatory, why would people who aren't Catholic choose to go there? So the reason I'm the plaintiff is um, you're not allowed to uh, work there if you're not Catholic. So that's the reason I'm the plaintiff here. So um, they do let non-Catholics go to Catholic schools, but that, there are some exceptions. If a school is full, for example, they don't have to um, allow non-Catholics to enroll, that they are they do prioritize Catholic enrollments. But they also, um, it's very well known when I was in teacher's college and continues to be well known that you only get a job in the Catholic school board if you have a letter of recommendation by a priest. Um, so it discriminates. Um, uh, my my argument is, is that it's not necessarily that it's discriminating against students, but it's discriminating against people like me. Um, and, you know, I took a very long time to get a job in the public board. Um, we were in declining enrollment for years and years and years. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm saying it discriminates against um, teachers and its hiring practices. And look, I, I, as a, individually, I can understand why that would be incredibly frustrating not to be able to get a job. Um, I, I really do. Some people, though, and again, let's let's play the, the two sides of this and have this discussion. There will be people who say, look, um, the Catholic board, that we choose the Catholic board because some people will say, look, we, we believe that they do a better job educating students or running a board. If we were to get rid of the Catholic board, do you worry that the quality across the province of education for those who would have chosen the Catholic board would have dropped or would drop? I don't see why we would save a lot of money. So estimates put it in the 1.5 billion range to not replicate services. I also think it's not widely known that uh, Catholic students are actually funded more per student by the provincial government to the tune of about uh, like one, um, sorry, about $1,500 a year. Uh, So they do get more funding per student than we do. And I would also say that they are allowed to expel students from their system for really any reason. So the public board really has to take every student because every student has a right to education. So the argument that, um, you know, Catholic education is better. Well, I think it's also because they are able to be selective about which students they retain in their system. Um, So and I don't see why with all that cost savings, we couldn't kind of put that back into the pot and improve services for everybody. I think that should be our goal. What, and I mean, maybe this is not, you know, the point of your lawsuit that you're bringing forward right now, but even if we got rid of the Catholic board, do you think that it would be possible to keep some of those things? You said that some of the things they do may work better, even though it costs more money. Are there some things that they would be, that they do that would be allowed to be done in a new singular board system, or would they mostly be gone? I think that's a really great question. I don't think I have an answer to that, but I think that is a question that should be brought forward. Um, part of the reason that I feel strongly that I'm a good person to bring this forward is, is one, it took me a really long time to get a job in the public board, but I actually have a religious background myself. Um, I grew up in the church. Um, my husband and I met at a, at a Christian camp. Um, my grandparents were missionaries. I went to church my entire life. And I think that there's a lot of value in, um, you know, opening up those conversations in a public school setting. Um, so, you know, when it comes to a religious education or having classes on religion or all those kinds of things, you know, I don't see why we can't have that conversation about integrating those things into the public board. But maybe it's not just Catholic education. You know, maybe people from other religions can also learn about their religion at a public school setting. I mean, we don't have the infrastructure for that right now, but I, I don't see why not. I think that would mm. be really 
um, something that we should be having a conversation about. It is. Uh, look, Adrian, you've um, you've touched on one of those this hot button discussions that people have, as I say, had for a long time and will continue to have. And uh, listen, I really appreciate you taking time to take your to explain your position today. Thank you for giving us the time. Thank you so much for having me on. That is Adrienne Havercroft. Uh, you can read more about her in the spec. Uh, there's a story about the suit that is being brought forward. And do not forget the 900 CHML Twitter poll today. Should we have a Catholic and public school board or merge them into one? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're a long way from Ticat season. But there's an awful lot that's been going on with this team in the last few days. And I'm not going to say this team will look completely different next year when they play, but they will look different. Uh, Brandon Banks, gone. Jagera Davis, gone. Jalen Ackland, gone. Jeremiah Masoli, gone. Delvin Bro wasn't really a tie cap, but felt like it, gone. Uh, Micah Johnson in, Richard Leonard in. Oh, I forgot, Sean Burke, assistant GM, gone to Ottawa. Jeff Reinbold, special teams coach, gone to Montreal. Uh, Steve Milton, there are always years when you have, well, year, change happens every year in the CFL. And there are years when there are big name guys that change. This feels like one of those years. Well, I think it is. And, and, uh, and you notice that some of the guys are signing for two year contracts too. And I think teams are starting to realize that, uh, you get the right people in the right two years, then you can afford these one year ones. And, and when you get the right people in two years, it also helps with a fan base here. So Hamilton signed a few of their guys to two years. Some of them they brought back on one year because uh, if those players aren't really sure if they're going to last another year. Ted, Ted Laurent would be be an example of that. Uh, that said, um, the, some of the Tim Hortons field generation, as I like to call them, uh, two biggies anyways, uh, are Mazzoli and Banks gone. That's going to be hard visually on fans because they've come to identify those two guys along with Simone Lawrence and Ted Laurent and Mike Daly as sort of the Tim Horton's children. They've been there since the start of the, that field. Uh, and in fact, Simone and uh, Jeremiah and, and Banks have been there for the Guelph year as well. So the year before Tim Horton's field opened up. So there's a, a changing, but that's a long time. That field's been open seven, eight years now. And, and, uh, it, it's a long time. So it was a long time to keep a lot of core guys. I think one player that, uh, that we should mention that that's gone that, that, you don't notice unless you follow line play is uh, Darius Sirocco, mm. uh, who developed into a player immediately here, uh, like a first, like a, a starter right from basically his first game, and he's gone to Ottawa too. What, what they, they lost uh, one, two, three, four, five uh, players uh, of the six that they lost, uh, seven if you count Delvin, um, uh, eight if you count Banks, but so five of the eight to uh to Ottawa and Sean Burke and he knows mm-hmm. who who he was looking at too. He uh Acklin, he, uh that they has a special relationship, uh receiving a relationship with Mazzoli. Everybody knows uh what uh Sirocco can do, but there's a guy named Lor- Lorenzo Malden who played uh, started a couple of games and really was a a really good fifth um defensive lineman. He'll start uh in in Ottawa uh for uh there is a lot. There is a lot of stuff. Yeah, now, by the way, I don't lot. know if I, I don't know if I properly introduced Steve when we started the segment. Did I? Steve Milton from the Hamilton Spectator. Just in yeah. case I forgot that part, covers the Tie Cats all the time. Yeah, I'm still uh, here. Steve, <laughs> so, but Steve, what, okay, two names I really want to concentrate yeah, on for sure. a few seconds here. One of them, Jeremiah Mazzoli. The Tie Cats yes. were never going to be able to keep both expensive <clears throat> no. quarterbacks, but in that Great Cup game, when um, uh, what's his name, um, starting quarterback now. Um, 
Oh, uh, Evans got hurt. Evans, Dean Evans. When Dean Evans, thank you, mental block. When Devin, Dean Evans went down early, you were really thankful Jeremiah Mazzoli was there. They've brought in some guys to replace him. Can they play the game? Are they going to be okay to step in if Evans gets hurt again? I think Schultz will be. I don't think you want to have, have uh, him going sort of long-term. And if he was a long-term guy, he'd still be in Montreal, wouldn't he? Uh, as a second, yeah. at least. Uh, uh, but but uh, he's he's done a lot of starting. He'll he'll take some of the brunt off of Dane he may, um, because he can run the ball. So there are I don't know, but I assume that they'll make him the uh, the running quarterback. He might be the quarterback that uh, you know that that comes in for a certain bunch of series. But I don't think they'll do a lot of that. Um, so yeah, the drop off is uh, much larger than it would have been from uh, from and it was between. Uh, Evans uh, down to Mazzoli so and just, don't forget that before Mazzoli had started and and hadn't done well and it was Evans that came off the bench that's to, true. to win yeah, the game against Toronto surprise. and he was a yeah. surprise and he stuck around 16 straight the other right? name, I mean yeah sorry the other name and we got to get through these because the other name that really jumped out that a guy who I think I think flew under the radar for a long time and then in the second half of last year and through the playoffs was unbelievable was Jagera Davis who yeah um, just became a star. Is he as good as he played near the end of the year? Is that the guy that they've lost? Yeah, I, I think Jagarit suffered tremendous. He was one of the guys, and this happened to the whole Hamilton team. Uh, it happened to a lot of players, but it happens seemed to happen to Hamilton more. They, they, a lot of injuries from from uh, the layoff, and I think the layoff got to Jagarit as well. I don't think he was ready when he got here. In fact, I know he wasn't. And it took a while for him to play in. Uh, but yeah, he's a tremendous impact player. Uh, now he's 34. And so, so he's, when he goes to Toronto, he's going to, he can, he, they signed a bunch of guys last year who you think probably had as big a name as Davis, but they didn't perform the way that uh, Davis did last year. And so they've got somebody with recent history of performing very, very well on that line. They added Adrian, Adrian Tracy, who another former tire cap, but he has played in quite a while. So uh, we'll see where that goes with that. But that's a big one for the Argos. That is, Davis. That is. That's a very much an impact. And they already had maybe one of the best interior guys. I think Wynn is as good as anybody interior, but uh, Oakman, uh, who plays uh, interior for them as well, uh, and, and got a lot of sacks coming from the middle. It's a lot harder to get sacks from the middle than it is from uh, the outside. Well, the thing is, too, uh, not only did the Ticat lose guys. Now, they gained guys as well. They got Micah Johnson. Yeah. They got Richard Leonard. They picked up some other guys. But, I mean, the Ticats for the last few years have been the best team in the East. I mean, I don't I don't yeah. think there's been an argument about that. No. Uh, Toronto, boy, they have signed a bunch of guys. Even got Andrew Harris. Ottawa has now picked up a bunch of guys. Uh, Sean Burke has gone. This division seems like, Steve, all of a sudden it's a whole lot more difficult. Yeah, it'll come down to quarterbacking, Scott. Uh and, and line play, trench play. So let's see, Ottawa, do they have the line? It's a brand new line, right? They put together, I mean, they signed a bunch of people because they could. And first of all, they weren't very good. And they got rid of a lot of, they had a lot of salary spots so they could, they could afford. In fact, I think Jeremiah is probably going to make more this year than, uh, than the guy who beat him out here. Uh, remembering that Dane Evans took a bit of a hometown discount to help sign other players. Uh, and, uh, Jeremiah's probably, if he t- hits all his bonuses, will likely make slightly more than Dane will this year. But, uh, uh you know, they're going to be good. They're, they're going to be able to throw the ball and catch the ball. Whether they can protect Jeremiah, we'll see. But the, but the offset there is if Harris is any kind of year. And remember, he didn't play a ton of games. Um, but, but, uh, he still was a pretty effective guy as, as everybody found out in the Grey Cup again and, and, uh, and late in the season. So, um, I don't know if their defense is 
going to be able to hold up because it takes longer to put together a defense. Montreal, we'll see where they're at. Uh, if Adams returns healthy and then they can go, it, it depends who wins their Trevor Harris or him at quarterback. Um, we'll see what, what happens there. I'm not, they didn't really, they haven't really done much yet. They haven't, but Montreal. Toronto and Ottawa certainly look like they will. Toronto be and Ottawa certainly have. I think it's going to be more competitive. Uh, I mean, it was a fairly competitive division last year, the top three teams, m- most of the way. It's just, and everybody fed off, uh, fed, dined out on Ottawa. Uh, and, and, and Ticats really scuffled through the first, what? And then figured uh, it out. We got to run. And then really figured it out. Yeah. We got to run. Unfortunately, we could do this all day and we will. Yeah. We got lots of time before the season kicks off in four July months or June. Yep. Steve yeah. Milton. Four months. <laughs> Steve Milton from the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for doing this. All right. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The blockade at the Ambassador Bridge continues. It certainly has been going on. There's been no sign that it's going to be stopping. Uh, We've seen some stories that police are now threatening arrests if the trucks don't move. We'll see if that leads anywhere. But in the meantime, this is... We are hearing from the Premier and from the Mayor of Windsor and from others around, this is beginning to have a significant effect. I want to bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, thanks so much for doing this this morning. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. This, uh, The effects of this, clearly what we're hearing, some of the numbers we're hearing are pretty extraordinary for how this is going to be impacting the economy. You're right. And um, so let me just give you some big picture. And I, I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about the protests in Ottawa, because uh, although people in many uh, would say they're the same thing, they're, they're on Wellington Street, which is right in front of Parliament Hill, which is the site of protests throughout my entire life. And I've lived in Ottawa all my life. And it's not a critical piece of national infrastructure. It's not a bridge to the United States. It's not the Highway 401, Trans-Canada Highway. I'm trying to demark that I'm not discussing the, the protests in Ottawa. So now we're turning to the bridge. Um, One third of the totality of our GDP is imported and exported. We're a very trade dependent country, like many Western countries, uh, because we're not self-reliant in everything. We just can't make everything ourselves. We can't grow blueberries in January, to say something obvious, or cucumbers or oranges or bananas. And so we import about a third. And because of the unique situation of Southern Ontario, where you are, Southern Ontario, I mean, I'm talking from the GTA over to the the Windsor, is about a third of the totality of all of Canada, of GDP and people. That's the center of Canada. (laughs) The rest of us and the rest of the country may not like that, but that's the reality. So what's my point? One more fact. The data on logistics in Canada and the States are very clear. These are StatsCan, U.S. Statistical Agency data. 90% of all goods in Canada, the United States, move by truck. Rail's important for heavy, bulky commodities like iron ore and wheat and that sort of thing. But it is trucks that ship almost all of the stuff. So anyone listening to me right now, when you walk into Walmart or you walk into Loblaws or you walk into Canadian Tire or you walk into Shoppers Drug Mart, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. And I'm not picking on those companies. Any company you walk into, the chances are extraordinarily high that the stuff arrived in that store by truck, pulling up to a depot, pulling up to the back of the of the store, whatever, whatever. And so my point being that our logistics supply chain system in Canada is overwhelmingly driven by trucking. And a third of that stuff comes across 
the uh, the border. And 20% of, sorry for all the numbers, but one-fifth of all of that imported stuff crosses that one singular bridge, $330 million a day. It's staggering. Think about it. A third of a billion That's a huge. day crosses that bridge. The people of Southern Ontario, and not just Southern Ontario, those trucks cross the ambassador, and some of them come up and uh, service the Eastern Ontario. Ottawa's over a million people. Some go on down to Montreal. Um, you know, Some go up to Northern Ontario. So my point being that the infrastructure, and I mean it in the real sense, not the rebranded sense that says daycares are infrastructure. I'm talking in the sense that we've used it for 500 years. Bridges, roads, airports, national highways, and so forth. When you shut it down in a country, I'm talking Canada, second largest country on planet Earth, over 8,000 kilometers long, we're strung out over this enormous geographic distance. So our population, our country, is more dependent than almost any other country in the world on their infrastructure because that's how they survive. And so it's no surprise whatsoever that these plants and other plants will be shutting down or running out of materials because that so much comes across the Ambassador Bridge. Your, if I'm correct, your doctorate was in public policy, correct? It was. So what, what then, you're also, you know, you speak about economy, but what is the answer to this? I mean, is it time for the federal government to have a meeting and say, look, let's have a meeting and you move the trucks and we'll have a meeting. What, what do you do? I'm glad you asked that question um, because I wrote a paper um, and it wasn't high in the sky. It was based on hard data. Just bear with me. I wrote it in 2015 and it was after Stephen Harper had legislated the railroad workers back to work. And there were all kinds of people saying Harper's evil. He's bad. You know, he hates uh, union people and so forth. And I knew that I'm not saying he did or didn't. I'm just saying that the statement that only Harper had legislated strikers back to work, I knew was nonsense. I've been around long enough and I'm old enough. And I did my thesis on Canada Post, part of the Transportation and Communications Infrastructure of Canada, to know that there's been many times. So I went to the Parliamentary Library of Canada and there's superb researchers there. And I said, please help me. I want to know all the legislation from 1950 to 2015 that ordered strikers back to work from the, by the federal parliament. They said, no problem. They were incredible. They went and looked up every bill, every back-to-work piece of legislation. Where am I going with this? There were 35 bills from 1950 to 2015. Liberal governments, conservative governments, majority governments, minority governments, didn't matter. Every last bill except one. 34 of 35 bills ordered striking workers back to work in what sector of the economy? Oh, my goodness. Bridges, roads, ports, airports railroads, national transportation infrastructure. And mm. so I argued in the paper that the data screams at you that parliament, successive parliaments for three quarters of a century in our country have said, we will not tolerate national rail infrastructure being shut down for an extended period of time. And so they would use back-to-work legislation, sometimes court orders, but mostly back-to-work because those were strikes. And so I'm now going to answer your question. I believe that- Very quickly, because we're really short on time. Sorry, Ian. Okay. Yeah, very quickly. Based on this data, I predict that the government will either seek a court order or will introduce uh, legislation to uh, uh, approve removing the, the blockade. It is, uh, it is ongoing. We'll be talking about this more for sure. Ian Lee, I uh, really appreciate the time as always. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thank you.
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. My next guest had a story and did something about it. She's the wife of a man who had a stroke. She worked with him to help recover and a few other, met a few other people who were in a similar situation in the same program and then decided, you know what, this th- there's enough here to tell this in the form of a short movie. Her name is Alicia Tyson. She's a caregiver and a filmmaker. Uh, the film is called The Power of Sport. She joins us now. Alicia, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. Well, it is. And there's look, there's there's so many parts about this, and we have limited time. But I'm before we get into what was going on with your husband, I love the fact that somewhere along the way, as he's gone through this difficult time, you're working with him. Uh, and somehow it pops into your head, you know what? I think I can be Steven Spielberg here. I think there's a story here that I can tell as a filmmaker. I think that's great that you had enough to, enough thought to actually do it as opposed to just thinking about it. Oh, well, thank you. I think that the idea arose naturally when my husband was going through his rehab process. We were having hard times sometimes with motivation. So I started documenting his progress with films and photos and would show those to him. And that gave him some motivation and the ability to see that he was improving. And that you mentioned. Then... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, you mentioned recovery. Um, he had a stroke, as you say. And look, we, uh, those of us who have had someone near us have a stroke understand it, it's strokes are terrifying. I mean, it was it was his a significant one that had a massive impact on him. Yes, he had what's called a massive stroke. And so he has both cognitive and physical deficits. So he wasn't able to walk. He wasn't able to talk. He wasn't able to eat. And so when he was first diagnosed and first in the emergency ward, we weren't sure how he was going to recover and if he was going to recover. So did you worry that the the man that you had known for all these years that he was gone, that this was going to be a whole new life? Absolutely. We have no idea. Every stroke is different and each person's recovery is different. And I had no idea what it was going to be like moving forward. Would there have been a movie that you eventually made? Would there have been something like that if he had stayed that way? Because, I mean, some people, very unfortunately, some people don't recover fully or very much. And if that had happened, if he had remained in the state he was, would, would there have been a story to tell here? I think so. Absolutely. There are a number of stories happening in the process, and certainly the one is the person who has had the stroke, the patient themselves, and that is a story in and of itself. The other story is the one of the caregiver, and there are so many people as caregivers, and this is often the story that isn't told very, very many times, and I think it's a really important one. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't know if victim is the right word. Uh, maybe it is. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'll let you decide whether that's a good word, a stroke victim. I don't know if that, if, if people like that, but whatever word we choose to apply to it, there are really two people who fall into that category. Cause as you say, there is the person who's going through this, but the family member like yourself, um, this is also pretty affecting onto you. Absolutely. And, and the term that, um, people who've had a stroke like to use is stroke survivor. Okay. And, and fair enough. And, and I mean, I think there certainly is that I, I, it is again, having seen it up close personally, and, and obviously you have too, and you've documented this. I mean, it is a, um, it is a frightening thing. So, so you start getting into his recovery. And as you say, you start documenting this, did, did those videos and did those pictures, were they inspiration to see that I have actually made some progress here? Absolutely. So 
when I would show the videos and the pictures to Paul, he could actually physically see his progress, which was amazing because that was the motivating factor for him. And so every little step that he took, we were able to look back and then he was able to see it. It's really hard for him to see himself. So to see it on video and to see pictures was incredible for him. You called this ultimately, the, the movie you did, you called it The Power of Sport. Why The Power of Sport? The Power of Sport because with Paul and some of the other stroke survivors that were in his support group at West Park Healthcare Center, what I saw was that these people were active before they had their stroke. And then as part of their rehab process, it was sports that motivated them to get up every day. Oftentimes after a stroke, you don't know what your life is going to be like, and it can be very devastating, and you're not sure what's going to happen. But those people that are in the film, and my husband specifically, it was sport and the idea of getting back to the things that he did before, like tennis and hockey and golf and kayaking, that made him want to get up every day. Those things are great for motivating, but it also gave them a sense of social activity and support for other people to be around them. See, because it's, it's interesting you say that, because I was wondering about that, because there's two ways this could have gone. I mean, on the one hand, someone who's gone through what he did, who had been very active and done all those things, could look at this and say, it's just so daunting, I, I can't do what I did before, I can't get back there and be very discouraged. Or as you say, you could use it to say, I've got to get back to there. And I'm truthfully, I'm guessing there are probably people on both ends of the spectrum who go through this. Uh, your husband and the others in this film used it as the positive thing to, to, to improve. For sure. And I think that no matter what your ability, I think that there are opportunities for everybody. So there are all kinds of adaptive sports out there. And I really feel that if you want to do something, there is something for everyone. Um, just a very funny story that one of the things that we like to do is kayak and with the inability to use his left hand, we weren't sure if that was going to happen. But we got ourselves into a double kayak. Paul was in the front and I'm in the back. And oftentimes not holding on to that paddle, but he was moving his hands through the motion and we got going. And that was, I think, a big page turner for him where he thought, wow, maybe I can do some of this again. And it was very exciting. Again, the film is called The Power of Sport. Is there some place that people can see it, either in a theater or online or, or wherever? Is there a way to see it? Absolutely. If anybody wants to see the film, it's at sportandstroke.ca. Sport and Stroke Dotsia. And of course, it's worth pointing out that February is Heart and Stroke Month, which, um, uh, again, um, not to keep bringing this back, but anyone who has been through this or had a family member go through this understands um, what this is all about. And it is, uh, it is just, it's, it's, it's frankly terrifying when it first happens. And you're just thankful when you hear stories like yours, Alicia, where there is a positive outcome to this. Uh, listen, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. It's been terrific. By the way, again, February is Heart and Stroke Month, so um, be aware of that and uh, go watch that movie if you get a chance. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Came across a website the other day that had links to many, maybe all, I'm not sure, but many of the Super Bowl ads that are going to be shown during the game on Sunday. It wasn't hacked. I didn't hack anything. They are out there. They are public. Peyton and Eli Manning are in them. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen, Kenny G, Lindsay Lohan, Idris Elba, and the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world guy, uh, Snoop Dogg, Martha Stewart, on and on and on. They're all there. I want to bring in Robert Colt. He's a professor of practice and creator of the ad-watching tradition at the University of Michigan. Uh, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Great, but it's Michigan State University. Michigan State. Like different places. No, Come Kenny, on, I got University the wrong information. Michigan. 
I got the wrong. He's a Spartan. He's not a Wolverine. Let's make that clear. He's green, not maize and gold. All right. Um, exactly. And Michigan State has one of the best advertising public relations programs in America. He is uh, he is Magic Johnson, not Judge Joubert. There, there we go. Um, so somehow, I got to say, somehow when I watched these commercials yesterday afternoon, it felt almost like cheating to watch them ahead of the game. It felt wrong or dirty or something. This is exactly how it should work. If you have an ad and you're paying six, seven million dollars for 30 seconds in the Super Bowl, what's the point of hiding it till the game? Get it out there. Get a PR firm. Publicize it. The ads are made for people to see what is the big deal about waiting until the game to preview it. And right now there is a lot of spin from Madison Avenue about the cool ads and the Super Bowl is the biggest American television event of the year. It's our, it is our second biggest food holiday in the mm. States next to Thanksgiving. So, hey, publicize it as much as you want. I think it's going to be a great year for ads in the Super Bowl. See, I'm sort of surprised that you said that because I would have thought, my, my inclination would say, wait until the game so that everyone's watching it and there's a communal event to see these things together so you then talk about it together about whether it was a good ad or a bad ad, that there's this excitement or this anticipation of seeing them. Oh, no, you know, actually, I see most of the ads before the game. And the game is, you know, sort of uh, an afterthought. And people do talk about the production. So you can wait for the game if you want, but people still have to go to the bathroom sometimes. <laughs> and if it's a good game, they will do it during the commercials. So, okay, I, I've watched a bunch of these. I don't know if you've seen many of the ones that are out this year. Um, one of the challenges always is going to be, I think, that the super the expectation for these ads is so high for the super bowl whether it's the macintosh 1984 ad that you know is probably the gold standard that you're going to be held up against or whatever it's so you're you're competing with such high expectations is it even possible to match those most of the time um most of the time probably not but the best ads of the year are in the game so you've got to put your best creative foot forward if you're going to compete and have uh, an ad in the game somewhere, it should should it be great? It should be great. If it's a mediocre ad, it's going to be very forgettable. So you've got to do your best stuff and put it in the game, especially if you're paying a lot of money. Again, I, like you, I've seen a lot of the ads, and I think in the end it'll be a pretty good game this year. Yeah, and when you say a lot of money, the number that I saw is 30 seconds for $6.5 million. Uh, that's U.S., of course, for us up here. And, I mean, some of these ads, a lot of them are not 30 seconds, a lot or a minute. The one with the Manning brothers was two minutes long. I mean, again, if you're going to spend that much money, not just to buy the time, but to produce it and pay those people and everything else, you're right. It, it better it better stick somehow. You better finish watching that and at least know what the product was that they were selling. Oh, exactly. There's got to be some product integration. And if you've seen the ads already, I would predict the Amazon Alexa ad will be really good because it's integrated throughout a longer spot. Yeah, if you buy two minutes, you know, you're going to spend $25 million on one ad to, uh, to appear in the game. That's a big investment. You would think a lot of companies would say, I better get sales tomorrow. <laughs> and and they do quickly. Advertisers have reported that it 
it does result in sales. But at that level, it's a lot more about branding and long-term recognition and association with a product that you would like. Is there so you, you you certainly have the possibility through these ads to, as you just described, to boost your sales and to get a bump from this. Is it possible that if your ad is either so forgettable or so meh that that you could have the opposite effect? Could you hurt your business if you bought a Super Bowl ad and you tanked? Yes, it's happened. We had a series of dot com ads years ago, and I remember the dot-com company with a gerbil shooting out of a cannon. And people, well, that's a good, it's okay. But what is that? It, it, so, and the company went out of business. Now, maybe it was because of the ad, maybe it wasn't. So you can't directly say cause and effect. I will say several years ago, Chrysler produced a great ad in the game uh, uh, featuring Eminem uh, in Detroit. And he was driving through the streets of the Detroit. It had a great kind of beat to it. And then it results in a, a choir concert at the Fisher Theater. Just beautiful. The CEO of Chrysler said at the time it resulted in an additional $4 million, $400 million in sales yeah. in that quarter. So that's a direct response. He said that. And he's, he also said, well, if I knew it was going to be that good and had such a response, I would have put a better vehicle in it. So, so it, it <laughs> yeah, it has the possibilities. Effort. It does. Uh, the The commercials you can go look them up. Not just you, Robert, but people can go look it up. They're online if you want to see them. I will not uh, prejudge them for everyone else. Neither will you. Uh, there are some that I thought were terrific. There were two that I thought were absolutely baffling. Uh, however, we'll let everyone else make their decision. Robert Colt from the universe, from Michigan State University, the green and white one, not the blue, not the maize and gold one. Uh, really appreciate there the time today. Go. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for the plug. We appreciate it. Go green. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.